let's, let's talk about Epaphroditus and let's talk about things like joy and sorrow um, and how all this pertains to our role, our relationship with our neighbors and with the nations, right? So um, it's, it's, it's good. It's healthy to pay attention to these people. They're real people just like you and me. Epaphroditus was a, a, a real person, not just some fictional man or some superhero, some super saint. Uh, he was a guy who got sick. He was a guy who had uh, longings and who, who, who was distressed even, uh, but who was a, a very valuable person in Paul's life. As, as you can see, uh, this list of descriptions that Paul uses uh, for Epaphroditus there in verse, uh, verse 25. Um, and let's just run down that list. Uh, Paul describes Epaphroditus as a, a fellow worker, um, is, is one of the descriptors. And I think that's kind of interesting. Um, Paul's this sort of like big-time apostle, right? We, we sort of have a lot of esteem for Paul. We sort of hold him in pretty high regard for all of the things that he did, the, the, not only the epistles that he wrote, but the churches that he planted. And, and he was an apostle, like capital A, apostle, um, and, and certainly a leader, uh, among leaders in the ancient church. Um, and here, this man who is so highly regarded and so prominent uh, in the church and in church history uh, describes Epaphroditus as his fellow worker. Paul's not pulling rank. And he's not playing the hierarchy game. He's just considering himself one worker beside another fellow worker named Epaphroditus. And I think that's, that's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. Um, so Paul's, in one sense, humbling himself, but in another sense, lifting up uh, Epaphroditus. And he lifts up, you know, we'll see later on in, in chapter 4, other fellow workers. He, he talks about Euodia and Syntyche and Clement and the rest of my, my fellow workers, um, he just considers himself one brother among his brothers and sisters, reaching out you know, and, and spreading the joy of Jesus to uh, their neighbors and to the nations. Uh, he, he, he calls Epaphroditus a fellow soldier too, right? Not, not one of Paul's most um, frequent analogies. Sometimes he'll, he'll go to the, the whole military uh, motif he does it in Ephesians. He does it a couple other places. But, but this does kind of remind us, right, uh, well, where did that image come from? Well, he's surrounded by Roman soldiers because he's in a Roman prison. And, uh, and this is just one more clue as to his circumstances. Like, he's constantly being reminded of who's got the earthly power, you know, Rome. But Paul's living under a whole different government, and that's the kingdom of God, and so he, he knows who his true king and lord is. And, and he's a soldier, a fellow soldier uh, with Epaphroditus in, in God's kingdom, uh, spreading uh, God's message. Uh, and, and Epaphroditus, furthermore, uh, Paul refers to him now in relation to the Philippians. He, he says, Epaphroditus is your messenger. Uh, that's Literally the word apostle, but in this case, lowercase a, not, not uppercase a as Paul is. Uh, but Epaphroditus uh, is their messenger 
um, and minister uh, to Paul's needs. So uh, I, I love that Paul is affirming Epaphroditus as, as an apostle of sorts, like not an errand boy, but giving him dignity as, as one who's on an official uh, capacity to deliver uh, the aid that, that the Philippians uh, sent to Paul. And, uh, and, and to use the word minister is the same vocabulary, the same entomology as, as you know, words like priest and, uh, and, and ministry in a religious capacity, in a spiritual capacity. Uh, so so he's, Paul's referring to Epaphroditus as a priest, not simply as just a servant or, or a slave you know, to, to do their bidding. So I just want you to see all the ways that Paul's elevating uh, Epaphroditus. He, he's, he's not stingy uh, with his praise. He just kind of piles it on, actually. He's not, he's not worried about, oh, I don't want to puff up Epaphroditus. You know, uh, sometimes, you ever hear that in Christian circles? Like, oh, well, I, we don't want to puff each other up, so we're not going to, we're, we're going to be kind of stingy with, with our, our accolades. We're not going to affirm one another because we don't want to contribute to their pride or whatever. Like, Paul's not worried about that. Uh, and he's just elevating his brother, his fellow worker, his fellow soldier, his messenger and minister. So how many times, I want you to just imagine Epaphroditus, he's recovered from his illness. Paul's, you know, here's, here's the letter to the Philippians, you know, go, go home, Epaphroditus. Go, go reassure them that you're okay and, and, and take um, my brothers and sisters in Philippi uh, these, these words. And how many times do you think along that, we, we talked about this last week, six-week to three-month-long journey from Rome to Philippi, can you imagine Epaphroditus maybe opening that scroll and, and just reading again and again what Paul thought of him? And how affirming, uplifting, encouraging that would have been to Epaphroditus? Like how meaningful to him was, was Paul's praise. Um, just as an aside, look, um, you, you all have been incredibly generous with, with your encouragement. Uh, Kyle and I both want to tell you how much we appreciate your appreciation, you know, Pastor Appreciation Month in October. Thanks for the letters. Thanks for the cards. Thanks for the gifts. Um, they do mean a lot, and we're grateful for those things. So, um, let me, um, let, me, let me turn the, the conversation around, and, and we've been talking about Paul's words and his language toward Epaphroditus and how that would have made Epaphroditus feel. But, but think for a second about just the very fact that Paul is sharing these things and how remarkable that is. Let's pause and just consider the change that the gospel has made on Paul's life. Because before, or, or, or prior to when Jesus, like, literally knocked Paul off of his horse and, and confronted him with, with the reality of who Jesus is and, and Paul is the persecutor of, of Christ's body, the church, and you know, Paul's knocked blind, and, and, and that's his conversion moment. And, and prior to that moment, Epaphroditus would have been Paul's enemy. Paul describes himself in the next chapter, and we'll, we'll look at these verses again here in a few weeks, but let me just point out to you verses you know, four and following in chapter three. Paul's reflecting on his life prior to Jesus knocking him off his horse. 
And he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, you know, in, basically in, in our works, like, I've got, I've got more. I'm going to one-up you right now. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, <clears throat> of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. Come at me, right? I mean, he's just like saying, look, I've got, I've got this. But whatever gain I had, like looking at all of his spiritual accomplishments, I count that as loss now. Now, after being knocked off my horse by Jesus, I count that as loss compared to uh, the surpassing greatness of Jesus. It's all loss for the sake of Christ. And so because of that effect on, on Paul that the gospel has had, Epaphroditus is no longer his enemy. And I, and I, and I deliberately skipped over the very first you know, descriptor that Paul used of Epaphroditus. What does he say? What's the first thing on the list about Epaphroditus? He's my brother. He's my brother. Yeah, sure, fellow worker, you know, fellow mess, your messenger and minister and so on, but Paul's first accolade about Epaphroditus is based on union with Jesus, not usefulness for Jesus. It's what Jesus has done for us, not what we do for him. Jesus has loved us, saved us, brought us into his family, and that makes us brothers and sisters one to another, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And he's given us a, you know, a father in heaven, and he's given us brothers and sisters who we can love and who, who will love us. So Paul now considers himself a brother with a man who used to be his enemy, Epaphroditus, who was, to use Paul's descriptors, Epaphroditus was uncircumcised of the people of Philippi, of the tribe of who knows and who cares, right? A Gentile through and through. And yet now, because of Jesus, Paul's brother, right? That's the change that the gospel has over us. So we don't play by the world's rules anymore, you know, with this party and that group and this division and that, you know, subdivision. We're just brothers and sisters because of what, what Jesus has done for us. So, but Epaphroditus had a lot going on. Yeah, he's, he's probably reading again and again these words of encouragement and praise. Uh, but we learned from Paul that Epaphroditus had been very, very sick. So sick that everybody was, was genuinely worried that he's not going to make it. He was on his deathbed. Verse 26, we, Epaphroditus has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. We didn't think he was going to make it. Um, you, know, you ever been sick on the road? Have you ever been traveling and you got really sick? Like maybe so sick that you've got to go to a hospital in another city and nobody, nobody's around who knows you to even come visit you. 
And when you're that sick and you're on the road, maybe you're traveling with business or maybe you're on a vacation and now it's not only, you know, are you away from home, but you've kind of lost the whole vacation because you're sick and it's just, it's a miserable feeling. Apart from the fact that he's near death, but, but this sickness stirring an Epaphroditus, you know, kind of this doubling down of, of the, the pain, which is the longing for home. Like when you're sick and you're away from home, that makes you also homesick in addition to sick sick. And there's this, this longing to, to be with the people who love Epaphroditus. So he's, he's wanting to get home. No, no problem with that. We can understand that. But he's also distressed, um, is what, how, how Paul describes Epaphroditus. Distressed. Um, one lexicon says the, the word here means literally to be overwhelmed with sorrow or, or burden of mind. And what is distressing to Epaphroditus is that he's worried because his friends and family back in Philippi are worrying. So even in his sickness, he's still so other-oriented that, that he's distressed because the Philippians are going to be distressed about him. Um, and this is the same word that was used to describe Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled, like that kind of burden. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 um, that he was distressed too. Apart from other things, there is the daily pressure or distress on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So it's, um, it's, it's a testimony uh, and, and to Epaphroditus' credit that he's so other-oriented that despite recovering from this deadly illness, he's still thinking about other people. He's still thinking about the Philippians. Um, Paul goes on to describe how God had mercy on Epaphroditus. Not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And I'm the more eager then to send him that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. And so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Um, we've been talking during this series on joy for the world that, yeah, Paul in, a, in Philippians just keeps hammering the, the, the drum of joy. Uh, and he doesn't shrink back from that. He's not apologizing for that. You know, and he tells us again and again, rejoice in the Lord. So this repeated focus on joy, though, is not at the expense of other emotions, um, like even negative and, and, and painful ones. Epaphroditus is experiencing longing and distress. And Paul is experiencing sorrow. I mean, God is sparing him sorrow upon sorrow, but there's, there's still the, the, the primary sorrow that, that doesn't have another layer of sorrow put onto it. Paul's still got sorrow. And he's got anxiety. He, he's, he's thankful to have less anxiety, but he, he does have anxiety, right? Do you see that in verse 28? He's honest about what he's feeling, like even if it's sadness and, and anxiety. And he's honest about what Epaphroditus is feeling. In our emotional lives, I think what we see the Bible affirming should not be one-dimensional, right? 
capable of only feeling one emotion at a time, sort of on this linear way. No, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. Why? Because we're made in God's image, and God doesn't have one-dimensional emotions. He's not feeling one thing at a time. Well, I'm going to be joyful now, and then I'm going to be angry, and then I'm going to be sad, and, you know, God's joyful and angry and sad all the time in different layers and in different ways, according to different stimuli that, you know, grieve his heart or rejoice his heart. We're the same way. So don't be surprised when you're kind of going through a lot of stuff at the same time. And this kind of keeps us from two errors to recognize this. This is healthy. This is healthy spirituality, healthy emotional, you know, world uh, as we're trying to, to grow more like Jesus, who is the epitome of spiritual health and emotional health and all that good stuff. So there's two errors that we're being protected from to see that this is like multi-layered and it's not one-dimensional, our, our emotional life, because some traditions are, are teaching us this victorious view of, of Christianity that, that sort of assumes that the more faith that you have, then the less sorrow and anxiety that you should have. And they teach that mature Christians should only feel joy all the time. Would Paul endorse that perspective? No. So, I mean, we've already referenced 2 Corinthians 11. Paul himself was saying, apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So Paul intentionally takes on this anxiety on behalf of his brothers and sisters in Philippi or Corinth or Ephesus, or Thessalonica, you know, all the churches that he's planted. He, he, he brought that on himself. He didn't run from it. But if our Christianity has no room for things like sorrow and anxiety on behalf of others, then you won't ever take on the burdens of other people. Like The, the whole victorious Christian life thing is going to leave you isolated. It's going to leave you compassionless. It's going to leave you like worried. Oh no, I don't want anybody to steal my joy, so I'm not going to get my hands dirty in other people's mess. And I'm not going to press out with the gospel into hard places, lest my precious joy be bruised or you know, tarnished in some way. Do you see how like, that whole victorious thing is, is just wrong in so many ways? It's, it's, it's only one-dimensional, and it's not concerned for our neighbors or for the nations. And there's maybe a propensity to overcorrect, you know? People recognize, yeah, that's wrong, and we don't want to make that mistake of, you know, you have to be joyful all the time. We, and, and the other error is maybe overcompensating. Sort of being skeptical of God's call to us out of depression and anxiety and sorrow and to experience more joy, right? There's sort of this sense that if you're joyful, then you must not be sincere. <laughs> you must be, you know, immature. Real Christians are too busy suffering to celebrate. There's this overcorrection, right? And Paul obviously would not endorse that. Paul is relieved to have less anxiety, and he's thankful to be spared sorrow upon sorrow. 
And so this is a good place to just ask the question, look, is the gospel helping you in your sorrow and your depression and your anxiety? Does it lift that burden in any way? Are you tapping into the means of grace that God has for us? So yeah, on the one hand, Christians aren't supposed to paint plastic smiles on their faces all the time, but nor are we supposed to walk around just frowning all the time because our joy is really a part of the witness of the gospel to us. Just one more place to show you the complexity of this. Like, it's not one-dimensional. Paul describes himself to the Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and he's like, look, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And, and he just kind of just shows you how it's just hard to describe, and it's not, you know, one-dimensional. It's multidimensional. Look, by great endurance and afflictions and hardships and calamities and beatings and imprisonments and riots and labors and sleepless nights and hunger, and by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, and the Holy Spirit, and genuine love, and as those who are sorrowful yet always rejoicing, who are poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Life in the kingdom, it's weird. You're going to feel both. Sorrow and joy, all right? Um, one more thing just to kind of point out the way that God's grace works in our lives. Notice that Paul isn't crediting their faith with uh, um, the, the healing that took place for Epaphroditus. He's not, Paul isn't, isn't saying yeah, Epaphroditus had this super miraculous healing because of his super spiritual faith. What Paul is crediting for Epaphroditus' recovery isn't Epaphroditus' faith or Paul's faith, but actually it's God's mercy, right? Do you see that? And so the, the, again, kind of going back to prosperity preaching and, and the health and wealth gospel that focuses on the goodness or the quality of our faith, the gospel calls us to focus on the goodness of God, the quality of God, his mercy, not, not our faith. And so the gospel is calling us to trust him and depend on him, yes, but then to leave the results in his hands. The healing is up to him. And if he sees fit to heal us, wonderful. If he sees fit to take us even to glory, wonderful. So while we repudiate like the whole prosperity gospel thing, we, we also don't want to make an overcorrection here. I've heard, I ran across an article, and I, I never saw this term before. I never heard this phrase before, but it's so, it makes so much sense. You kind of go, why didn't I think of that, or why, didn't I, why haven't I seen that before? And in reaction to the prosperity gospel, sometimes we embrace a scarcity gospel where we're not expecting God to do much. Oh, we don't want to bother him, or I don't want to get my hopes up where I don't want to look like one of those crazy people. So we just don't expect God to do much for us. And the result is that we feel like he's kind of distant and disinterested. But look, if the James and the New Testament says to us, look, is anyone suffering or sick? Is anyone of you suffering? Let him pray. And is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And listen to the next verse very carefully. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick 
And the Lord will raise him or her up. And James, the brother of Jesus, by, by blood and through adoption, is telling us two things simultaneously, very deliberately. Because the word in, in Greek that he's using, the, the, the prayer of faith will save the one who, who is sick, can also mean heal. It's the same word that, that is translated save, is, is trans, we translate heal. So that prayer, yeah, will either save that person from their sins or heal them, and the Lord will raise him up, meaning raise him up from his sickbed, or raise him up in the resurrection if that is a sickness unto death. You can't lose based on God's mercy. The prayer of faith that looks to Jesus for healing and for salvation will be answered. So, you know, are we expecting God to answer prayer or not? Um, just something to think about. Let me wrap up by this whole idea of, of Paul in verse 29 telling us to receive uh, Epaphroditus, he's telling the Philippians, to receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy and to honor such men. For he nearly died, or literally, he drew near to the point of death, is, is how it reads in the original. He drew near to the point of death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Um, so what does it mean to, to honor such men, honor men like Epaphroditus? Well, part of it means do what he says in verse 29 and receive them with all joy. You know, there's one thing to honor somebody, maybe it's a boss or maybe it's a politician or, you know, somebody we're supposed to honor people like that, people who have authority over us. And you can do that with sort of a, not a lot of enthusiasm, but still obedience, you know. You can have respect that's, you know, maybe your heart's not in it, but your words and your attitude and your actions demonstrate honor. I get it. But isn't it a greater honor to that person to enthusiastically, you know, obey or fall in line or praise them or, you know, uh, give them deference, right? Like that joy increases the honor that you give to that person who is over us. So honoring men like Epaphroditus means joyfully receiving them. And then the greatest honor that you can give to anybody is to imitate them. That shows that you really do respect them, that you really do uh, appreciate them. And, and so how do we imitate Epaphroditus? Well, Epaphroditus, Paul says, risked his life to complete what was lacking in your service or ministry uh, to me. And so if we're going to honor men like Epaphroditus, a good question for us to be asking is, what are we risking in our ministry to Christ? What are we willing to risk? Becoming uh, a Christian guarantees our eternal safety, right? We're, in, we're safe in the embrace of our Father in heaven. But, but being a Christian, like we know, we know our destination, but, but life on this planet 
you know, south of heaven before we're, we're with the Lord forever means that we are willing to joyfully risk our comforts, our reputations, our money, uh, even ultimately our lives. For the sake of Christ, for the blessing and the joy of our neighbors and the nations. So what does that look like? Well, let's, let's talk about a few of the different ways that we are called to make and take joyful risks. You do that, you, you just did that when the offering basket was passed around. Like God loves a cheerful giver, right? Somebody who cheerfully or joyfully takes risks with our money, right? The Bible talks about um, joyfully giving and, and, you know, not the kind that the the greedy imposters impose, but, but a kind of joyful giving that puts our standard of living at risk. When, when you give 10, at least 10% uh, to the Lord for the purpose of you know, equipping the church and serving missionaries and, and partnering with them, what you're doing is you're, you're going without 10% of what the world you know, you know, enjoys and so on, so that others can have infinitely more in, in heaven and in eternity. That puts that stuff at risk. Like there's going to be times when, okay, well, I know here's, here's the tithe check, and I wonder if I'm going to have enough to do X, Y, or Z now. That's a, that's a risk to maybe some comfort or some security or whatever. That's an active way that you all just, just express that, what, what a risk looks like. Uh, another way that we can joyfully take risks is going on the mission field, right? I mean, when the McCalls told us that they are going to Medellin, Colombia, right? Some of you went, what? They're going to the murder capital of the world because of the drug cartels that used to be prominent in the 80s and the 90s. So they've cleaned Medellin up tremendously, and it's not nearly as dangerous as it used to be, but come on. Medellin's a dangerous city. What about the Allens going into the jungles of Colombia with the Ocampuses, right? So there's risks that even members of, of, of this congregation are taking on the mission field. And we, you know, yesterday we were hearing about Kishur and all of the leeches all over his body. Who's here for the leeches talk? Okay, right, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You missed some great pictures, people, if you, if you weren't here yesterday. Uh, like the bloody leech in his hand. Trekking for hours through the jungle uh, in India to get to this uh, remote tribe who just wanted to hear God's word preached. So those are the kind of risks that people take. You can ask the Mirabellas about the joyful risks that they took taking their, their, their five kids and moving to Japan. Uh, to help plant churches in Japan. You can talk to Don Ward or Jeff Borden about the joyful risks that African pastors are taking to faithfully care for their flocks. You can go on a short-term mission trip, you know, like we did last summer, to Medellin, Colombia. Like, what? Or you can plant a church, which means taking a joyful risk to your friendships and your comforts and everything that you love about Tabernacle. If we're going to start a new church you know, in a year, that's going to mean some sacrifice, right? Look, contrary to our many prayers for 
safe travels for loved ones and so on. Like safety, yeah, we, we pray for that. But Christianity is not about staying safe at all costs. God doesn't call us to be stupid. But he does call us to take joyful risks so that others can know the love of God, um, that they can, our neighbors and the nations can know the gospel of Jesus, who ultimately is the one that we want to honor. Jesus was found in human form, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him or honored him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, right? The Philippians originally sent Epaphroditus to Rome uh, to help Paul, who was in prison. And the way that they were helping Paul was in prison is because Rome did not provide food or clothing or any um, day-to-day living necessities for their prisoners. If you were in prison, if you did not have friends or family on the outside to provide those things, you died in prison. And that's why Paul's so grateful to the Philippians for their aid. And Jesus, in a similar way that the, that the Philippians sent Epaphroditus to care for Paul while he was in prison to, to basically save him, save his life, Jesus is sent by God the Father to save us, imprisoned by our sin, and to deliver us, and to rescue us. But Jesus didn't just draw near to death. He went all the way. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross, because he loved us and God exalted him and honored him for that. Jesus, like in the same way that Paul, he's not an enemy anymore with Epaphroditus because the gospel changed him. Jesus became like us so that we could become like him. We're no longer God's enemies. When we place our trust in Jesus, that's the way we honor him. When you rejoice in Jesus, that's how you honor him. When we bow our knee and we confess him as Lord and we take risks in his name as a demonstration of our faith, not to earn our salvation, not to impress him, not to get gold stars, but just to show, Lord, I believe. God's love compels us to love our neighbors and the nations, making those joyful steps of faith, those risky steps of faith, so that they might know the love of God in Jesus too. So how are you joyfully risking your life, risking your standard of living for the gospel? Luke 17, Jesus says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will keep it. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are grateful for the way that you truly drew near to death, embraced it, was buried in a tomb after the curse of death on a cross in order to be raised to new life so that we might be justified, that we might be forgiven, that we might become like you, made anew as your sons, as your daughters, brought into your family of faith. Lord, would you lead us to, to joyfully do things that the world thinks is crazy, maybe, 
but that these risks are done uh, on behalf of you, on behalf of your kingdom, to bless our neighbors and the nations so that they might know more of your salvation, so that they might know more of Jesus. Lord, would you help us today uh, to figure out what that looks like and to grow more and more in conformity with your kingdom? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.